Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. The only thing necessary for evil to prevail is that good men and women do nothing. I am simply a mouthpiece for good people from around the world who want to make a difference. The engagement and the involvement of ordinary people is what is going to change our criminal justice system. Many have tried and failed. The only difference between them and me is I'm bringing an army with me. This is Truth and Justice. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for episode number 405. I'm your host, Bob Ruff. And I'm your co-host, Mike Bussing. And in the first half of today's show, we're going to answer some listener questions about George's case. And in the second half, we're going to address listeners' reactions to our announcement of the Season 5 case coming in less than three weeks. Sounds like a plan. All right, first we've got a post here from listener Anna. Anna writes, Does it bother anyone else that the statute of limitations is so short and George's sentence is so long? I feel like the statute should at least be as long as the sentence for the crime. That's a really good observation. I mean, I I don't know that I have anything to really add there, but but yeah, it is messed up that George still has 18 years left to spend in prison, but the person that actually robbed that store is not at risk of spending any time in prison. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's just it's just one of those things that I just wish we could change in our criminal justice system. It just there's so many elements of our system that is just stupid. And I think that it's because when our founding fathers, you know, when when the constitution was written, when our criminal justice system was formed, I don't think that it occurred to anyone that there would be corruption, if that makes sense. And I'm sure that's naive of me to think, but you look at our jury system and you, and you you look at so many different elements of a trial and how hard it is to overturn a conviction and kind of how easy it is to get one and Everything on paper with our criminal justice system, even including this, makes sense on paper. It makes sense if everyone in the criminal justice system is on the up and up. If the cops are honest and doing things properly, if the prosecutors, if the judges, even the defense attorneys are doing things properly. But it's like there's not any check and balance in our criminal justice system for corruption. Mm-hmm. It's like if if you get a bad seed in the prosecutor's office, or on the judge's bench, then it's just it's like they have unchecked power. And uh, I guess it's more of a soapbox than anything else, but that's why we all need to pay attention. And really, really, and like I, I've mentioned in some previous episodes, that I am personally guilty of this, of not really paying much attention on election years. You know, I'll look at the president and, you know, senators and things like that, but I never pay much attention to, or I haven't in the past, what judges were electing, what prosecutors were electing. 
But, you know, if nothing else, do your research and really pay attention to who you're voting for. Don't just check that box. Sarah writes to us, loving learning about photogrammetry through this season. My question is, has anyone looked into any other cases the first phony, quote, expert testified in? Now she's talking about Michael Knox here. I did a little bit of research on Michael Knox, and, and he has testified as an expert quite a bit. Uh, the problem was what was pointed out at trial that the judge seemed to not care about as far as when they were evaluating him as an expert is the fact that he, at that point, had never, ever testified uh, as an expert in photogrammetry or height analysis based on photogrammetry work. Uh, and to my knowledge, from what I've seen, he's never done that since then. I would really, really like to know how the prosecution landed on him. You know, it's not like he was a local guy. They they take this guy from Jacksonville, Florida, who's never done this kind of work, doesn't advertise that he does this kind of work, and and they bring him all the way from Florida to give this BS analysis of this photo. Like, I could see that happening if it's somebody local, but I always thought, it's like, how did that even happen? Yeah, it's absolutely insane. And they, they pay him, right? Oh, yeah, of course. He was paid by the state as an expert. And they they had to pay for travel expenses and lodging and all the stuff you have to pay for an expert when you bring him from out of state. It's not like he had a, you know, he had a, had a shingle hung outside his office that said, you know, we'll testify for whatever you want for a fee. I don't I just don't know how that connection got made. I'd be really curious how the Bell County, Texas doesn't land there are actual photogrammetry experts out there that that do this kind of work. How do they land on this guy from Jacksonville, Florida that does car accident reconstructions to do this? It really goes to support the idea that Bell County knew that they were going to have to get somebody on the stand to essentially lie for them. Yeah, I mean that that's that's a that's a bold way to put it, but I, I you're not wrong. You're, you're definitely not wrong. I think that they couldn't go with a real expert. You know, they they couldn't go with somebody who was a photogrammetry expert. They had to know that they were going to get the wrong results. But I would be really curious to see if there's some kind of connection between the prosecutors back then or the detectives, somebody in this guy, because. I just don't know how that happens. But anyway, it's a good question as far as looking into what he's testified. He's never done this before. Never did it before. Never did it after. So no, there's no other cases where he's done this kind of work. All right. And Liz writes to us, did the police not at least attempt to take fingerprints at these crime scenes? Even if there were multiple prints, ascertaining that the same prints were at every scene would have been helpful. Not to mention that they could have run them through the national database. Have you already addressed this, Bob, or is this a big hole in the crime scene investigation? And we did bring this up on the surface in last week's follow-up, but let's dig a little deeper here. It really goes back to, remember the, oh, what was his name now? I'm drawing a blank on the, the FBI guy, Thomas Martin, maybe? That he, sounds right. Yeah, from the Edward Ace case. Yeah. Uh, and, he, and he went into pretty good, in, in a lot of depth, at trial in Ed's case, explaining how what you think about fingerprints isn't what they see on TV. It's not like every time you touch something, you leave fingerprints. It's got to be, you know, a certain type of surface, but you know, like the door or the counter would work. It's got to be a flat surface. It's got to be a clean press. There has to be oil on your hands. There's a lot of things. So it's not like every time you touch something, there's going to be a fingerprint on it. Uh, and the other thing is you can't dissect prints either. Meaning, yeah, he might say he had a clear thumbprint on the counter or the door, but so did the guy before him and the person before him and the person before them. Well, it's not like you have five different prints. If those were all on top of each other... It's just a mess. Yeah, it's a gobbled up mess. Yeah. You, you can't pull them apart. You can't extract one from another. So, yeah, they did. The The original investigating officers, I think, did a fine job. 
Uh, and you'll hear a little bit more about this from Michael Ware on Sunday. But on the scene, you know, they're taking witness statements. They are checking the videotape, measuring the door, uh, get doing everything. It wasn't until Detective Carl Ortiz got on board a few weeks later when everything just went to hell in a handbasket. Yeah, and we'll definitely hear more about Ortiz in Sunday's episode, too. Right. Okay, Amber says to us, has a reenactment of the crime scene been done at the location using a man with George's measurements? I think that would clearly highlight the height difference. No, and that's something that's, that really, when I talked to George for the first time, it was just almost like a head slap. As soon as I talked to him, I was like, first of all, I was like, why didn't your defense attorneys take you to the crime scene? You, know, you could recreate the video with the same camera in the same place. And it was literally, I think I could hear him smack his head, like, duh, but they just didn't. And no one's done that since. So, but, but what we heard from Grant Fredericks, if you understood what he was talking about, is they did that virtually. Uh, but the problem with that is then you've got to convince. Now, it's not a jury now. It's a judge, at least. But I think it would be much easier to convince a judge or a jury if, like, here's actual George Powell walking through that door. As opposed to them trying to get the jury to trust the software that they plug their numbers into. Right. You know, it's the same thing. It's 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 accurate real science that Grant Fredericks is doing. I mean, these what millions of data points that they've measured in that store in order to create the geometry 3D model of this of the scene and George. Uh, but it, it hopefully will that will be that will be enough. It should be. You heard Grant Fredericks on last week's episode, and he was it was really, really powerful testimony. But I know one of the things, and Michael Ware should be addressing it in Sunday's episode, is there was another hearing that, that kind of popped up in this case because they just keep scheduling things you know, whenever they can, so there's not a whole lot of notice. Uh, but one of the things on the table was Mike had filed a motion. He had sent me the motion, uh, but he had filed a motion requesting for the judge to allow them to take George Powell to the crime scene to do exactly what you're talking about here. And I don't know if that's been ruled on or anything. We should hear about that from Mike on Sunday. Okay, and then Juan says to us, do we have any information on the guy in line ahead of the robber? He's talking about the 7-Eleven video. Wondering if the police collected the piece of paper he wrote on or if the cashier knows his name. If we find him, and he's six foot tall or taller, then we can assume George is our guy. But I have a funny feeling this guy's well under six foot tall. Uh, to my knowledge, we don't. And that, I think it was Melissa Keene in her trial testimony that she was asked that, I think, on cross, you know, did did they track down this witness? Or maybe it was Ortiz. And it was she said that what he was writing on the piece of paper, um, and I don't know if I've addressed this yet on the show, but when she testified, he wanted to buy beer or something, if I remember correctly, some kind of alcohol. And the store had a policy that they couldn't sell alcohol after 11 p.m. or after midnight or whatever, and they just missed the mark, whatever it was. And he was pissed. And so he wanted to talk to a manager, and she gave him that piece of paper for him to write down his name and phone number for the manager to call him. Oh, that's funny. I thought he was filling out a money order or something. I, I didn't know. Yeah, no. And, and so it's so... I hate to keep using the word stupid, but it's stupid. They didn't pull... There's an eyewitness right there who just gave you his name and phone number, and at least according to Melissa Keene, the police never asked for it. They never they never took it. The man's never been tracked down. We don't know his name. Uh, that would be another another thing that would be really useful if um, anybody, we talked about the Facebook post that we have pinned to our page to share with anybody in Bell County area. 
uh, if somebody might know, I'd love to ask Melissa Keene, but you know herself, if she happens to remember or knows whatever happened to that note. But uh, it's pretty obvious from her testimony last week that I think Allison put it best that she's doubling down on uh, her statement that it that it was George Powell. But no, as 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 far as I know, the man's never been tracked down, and it's another missed opportunity, in my opinion, from the video. That guy is about the same height as Melissa Keene, who's five foot one. So he he looked very short. And you see when he's walking through the door, the handlebar on the door, the handrail, which is usually about forty five inches, is is darn near at nipple height to him. So he's he's a little bitty guy. All right. Before we take a break, there were a couple comments on the fan page with people asking why we decided to go with the George Powell case. It's not typical of us and George has representation, his case is already in court, and they want to know what we're supposed to do. Okay, that's a good question, and I, I, we kind of addressed that when we launched Season 4, but yeah, I've seen some of the, and, and, and some of the comments are overwhelmingly, there's been a lot of support for this case, but there, there's been a few people that are a little negative about it, saying, number one, it's short, and why are we doing it? I saw somebody even said, why don't we just take six weeks off instead of covering this, which I, I gotta be honest, I think it was kind of a shitty comment to make. So I, I I guess let me address that one first. We didn't take six weeks off because even if this isn't the most popular case for people, you know, because it's you know there's there's no one's been murdered, uh, there's no one's life's on the line other than George Powell's, and like you said, there's already a lot of represent there's representation and all this stuff happening already. But what we have is we now have hundreds of thousands of people that know about his case that are supporting George. It's now have gained international attention, which does put pressure on the current district attorney's office because they know that people are watching and people are listening and people are paying attention. They can't just slide this under the rug like they would hope to. And it does make a huge difference for George and Tamara and his his family, including his son, to get his story out because people just believe when someone gets convicted that they're guilty. And we've seen that with Ed Eighth. We've seen that with Kenny Snow. We've seen that with Jesse Eldridge, and we're seeing it with George Powell. Through the podcast, people are able to listen and realize, even though they've been saying all these years that they were innocent, no one really believes that. But when someone comes out and starts telling the story and giving the facts in a very public way, the way we do, it changes people's life. This is changing George Powell's life. Maybe not in the way that it's changing Edward Eight's life or Jesse Eldridge's life, but it's changing his life, the support that we have. So, so that's why we didn't just take six weeks off. Because we have this, and it wasn't just about giving us some time, what some people suggested to prepare for our season five. It wasn't just about that. It was nice to have an extra six weeks to do that, but that wasn't the purpose. To be in all honesty, the reason that we took this case, and I'm proud to take it, and I stand behind the decision to do it, the reason that we took this case is because the reason that Edward Eights has a shot at finally going home to his family is because Michael Ware, the executive director of the Innocence Project, was willing to take a phone call on his cell phone while he's driving back to court from some no-name guy he's never heard of from Michigan and heard me out with Edward Eight's case, a case that had been sent to the Innocence Project on a couple of occasions, and there wasn't enough there, there wasn't enough merit on the surface for them to take it. Edward Eight was destined to die in prison before the Innocence Project took his case, and they took his case because Michael Ware gave us a shot. And so when that same guy, when Michael Ware came to me and said, Bob, we need your help. We need to put the information about this case out there. We need people to hear it. And we need to find out who actually committed these robberies. 
You're damn right I'm going to take it. And, and if he ever asked me to do it again, I will do it again. Because Edward Eights owes Michael Ware his life. And that's a debt that I'm willing to pay back in any way possible. All right. To be clear, we got a lot of positive feedback, and almost everybody's excited about our upcoming coverage of the West Memphis Three. But there were a few people that had some concerns, and I'd like to address those. All right, shoot. Emily writes to us, if I remember correctly, it was said that the smaller cases without much publicity were going to be covered on the podcast. I'm confused about why the West Memphis Three is the next case when there are books, movies, etc. Coverage on all mediums. Am I the only one? Yeah, there's been a lot of discussion on the fan page about this because it is sort of, quote, off-brand for us because people wanted me to cover Stephen Avery's case mm-hmm. um, as an example. And and I said, no, I'm not going to because, for starters, to be honest, I'm not real sure that he's innocent. And secondly, like I said, he has a ton of support. He's got all kinds of lawyers working for him. He's He had the Making a Murderer documentary. And so, of course, people are wondering why we're doing this one when there's all the the media coverage of this case as well but there there's there's a couple of differences here number 1 Stephen Avery's case as an example has all of this this help people working for him as we speak as opposed to this case where if we're just looking at the the wrongfully convicted Damian Jesse and Jason they had a lot of help and coverage you know the 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 goal for almost 20 years was to set them free. And, you know, they had, you know, Eddie Vedder and Henry Rollins and Johnny Depp and Natalie Maines, just to name a few people that were fighting for them, plus all of the citizens that that watched the documentaries and got involved, including Damien's wife, Lori. But it seemed like once they were set free, all of that support seemed to go away. Now, there's stuff going on behind the scenes, but it's almost like people stopped caring. The majority of people, not the people that are involved in their legal team and their their investigators, but the majority of people thought it was interesting, it was a victory, they were set free, but remember, they were set free on an Alfred plea. So they've never had justice, very similar to Kerry Max Cook, where they, they were set free, but they had to plead guilty. They're still living today as convicted murderers. But the reason that I chose this case, and remember back when we rebranded from Serial Dynasty to Truth and Justice, I said that this podcast, moving forward, I, I can't tell you where it's going, but what I can tell you that we're going to go where the cases take us and that the podcast is going to become dynamic, meaning I don't know where it's going. And I, I'm just the type of person that I go where I feel led to go, so to speak, including taking an early retirement from the fire department and starting to do this work full time. I felt like it's what I was supposed to do. And so I did that. Now, in this case, as I mentioned before, I study wrongful conviction cases all the time. I look for patterns. I look for clues to how these things happen and how we can undo them. And in my studies of the West Memphis Three case, I actually decided to take this case based on something Damian Eccles said. I was watching, I don't remember if it was The Last Paradise Lost or if it was West of Memphis, but towards the end... He was being interviewed, and he said, people think that this case is unique, like it's just this incredible injustice, but he said the reality of this is that this happens all the time. In his words, there's nothing special about their case other than the fact that people made movies about it. And then he said, but the real injustice here is that the person or persons that murdered those three eight-year-old boys 
has never been caught. Those boys have never had justice. And when he said that, it was like a dagger to the heart for me. And and maybe some people don't, other people don't feel that way. But honestly, for me, it was, it just hit me to my core. I actually went back and re-watched the documentaries. And I re-listened to a lot of the other podcasts that have talked about the case. And the focus of all of them has been on Damien, Jason, and Jesse. And the focus needs to be on them. They, they, they had 18 years of their life stolen from them. And more so than that, the, the trauma they experienced, they'll, they'll, never, they'll never be the same again. It's an uphill battle for the rest of their lives. I, I watched, uh, Mike, you and I were watching a couple days ago, a speech that Damien Eccles gave. You know, he left Arkansas. Uh, but this spring, when Arkansas decided to murder eight people because their their lethal injection drugs were going to expire. Yeah, ridiculous. Yeah, it's awful. Well, Damien decided to go back for that. And, and he spoke at a rally to try to save these people's lives. People that he was in prison with, that he was on death row with. And it was touching to see Damien, because Damien does a lot of stuff. You know, he does um, a, a lot of art and what he calls his magic and stuff that he, that he does on his Patreon page. That's how he makes his living. But to see him just, you could tell he wanted to crawl out of his skin. Just the post-traumatic stress. And he was, you could see he was tortured being there. But he felt like he had to be there for those people. So you can see in that, that this has changed their lives. And they'll never get that time back. And they're never going to be the same after what happened to them. But all of the coverage, all the focus has always been on them. And when I rewatched all these documentaries and everything, it occurred to me, everyone forgot about the victims. Everyone forgot about Stephen Branch and Christopher Byers and Michael Moore. They, they've never been the focus. You know, they, they, there's been an attempts to find the real killer or killers, but that wasn't an attempt to set the West Memphis Three free. And, and there never has been justice, and I believe that there's never going to be justice if someone doesn't step up to the plate and do something. And and so from there, you know, I I, I remember coming in here pitching the idea to Mike and like, dude, I, I want to do something crazy. I want to do something different, and it's going to be tough. And, I, and I'm telling you right now, it's going to be hard. There is so much pressure on us. This is going to be difficult because this case has been picked over. There's been all the movies. People think they know it all, but as as you and I know. That's not the case. Yeah, we've already found things that have just absolutely blown our minds. Yeah, the, the perceptions and the misconceptions about the case are huge. But you know, there's a few things we know. We because we went through this with the Anand Syed case, which was was an extremely popular case. That there is a lot of divisiveness. There are people that that have already made up their mind as far as whether the boys, the the West Memphis Three, are innocent or guilty. And much like the Anand Syed case, there's they're very passionate about it. And so you now I had to sit down and have a talk with you and with with Shane before we even considered or, or decided to do this case and warn you guys that yeah. <laughs> it's going to get. And, and for you, the listeners, uh, when you're watching the fan page and the Facebook page and Twitter, things are going to get ugly. There are people out there that are convinced that the three are guilty. And they won't just say you're wrong. They'll say, let me think back to the Anand Syed days. I had... Uh, yeah, because that was before I came on. So right. you've, you've gone through that. Yeah. Uh, there, there were posts online that I, that I beat my wife. I was a child molester. I can't even remember all of them. I think I did see on Reddit 
before I was even in the picture and actually employed by you, somebody had caught wind through all their podcasts that I spent a lot of time around the studio. And they said, quote, I have a punchable face. I remember that. Yeah, that's the one you remember. <laughs> Understand, this was not a decision that was made lightly. We are very very well aware of the fact that it is not our typical case. We, we know the challenge that's in front of us. And we know that it's going to be very, very difficult. And we know that we're going to have to take a lot of abuse to do it. But I, I feel so strongly about the power of all of you, the audience, that if we put our heads together and just scour the earth in real time, that we can find out who actually killed them. And I'm not guaranteeing that. I'm not promising it. I'm not even suggesting it. I'm just telling you that that's the goal, is to finally bring justice to these three boys. So, yes, the West Memphis Three, in quotes, uh, Jesse and Jason and Damien, all have a lot of support. But the Forgotten Three, Christopher and Michael and Stevie, have never had any support. And they need truth, and they need justice, and that's why we're taking the case. And then, and then to further that along, you know, you, for me, it's like when I feel led to do something, you're you're kind of looking for confirmation. Through that, I, I reached out to Jason Baldwin, and and Jason now lives in Texas, actually, and runs an organization called Proclaim Justice, where he helps other people who have been wrongfully convicted. And when I talked to Jason, he was like, "Yes, yes, let's do whatever you need to help. Let's do this." To hear in his in his heart in his in in his his words that he wasn't saying find them so I can get this conviction off of me, it was find them, solve this case, put an end to this nightmare, and finally get justice for those boys. And is offered to help in any way that he can. And the investigator he works with, who worked on this case years ago, John Harden, has been on calls with us constantly and is willing to help in any way that he can. And then and then we reached out to Damian Eccles and 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 talked to him and then. And then got on the phone with his wife, Lori, and Lori says, yes, yes, do this. Somebody needs to do this. And they start putting us in contact with investigators they've worked before and giving us access to the case files to pick this thing back up and get new eyes on it and try to finally solve this thing. And, and we went to Jesse Miss Kelly's house and we, we met with him. And, you know, Jesse doesn't do, he doesn't even have a phone. He doesn't do media. He doesn't do interviews, doesn't do any of that. But the nicest guy you ever want to meet and and told us that, yes, man, he, he supports what we're doing. The three, even though they're out, are in complete support for us to try to figure out who actually did this. So there was a lot of reasons why we did this. So it's speaking to anyone who's wondering why we're doing this when these people have support. While you may feel like it seems like they have all the support in the world, those three are determined to find out who actually did this, and they're willing to do whatever it takes to get it done. So they still want the support, even though you may think they don't need it. And then again, the, the primary focus here is about what I'm calling the forgotten West Memphis Three, and that's Stevie, Michael, and Christopher. All right, Bob, I got a few more here, but I think you put it well, and I want to leave it with that. So I want to thank all the listeners for engaging, for your support, and for your questions and comments, both positive and negative. And I'm really looking forward to working with all of you on this case. Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Mike Bussing is our executive producer. All music for the show was created by PutThemInASong.com. I want to thank Chris Brinkley and Katie Ross for all the work that they're doing on the website. Thank you to Amanda Meyer for designing and creating our Friday follow-up logo. 
Thank you to Sarah Mueller, Anna Dindorf, Britta Bliss, and Stephanie McConnell for transcribing the episodes, and thank you to Desiree Dunn for printing them and mailing them off. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. And like Mike said, we really, truly do appreciate all of the comments, all the constructive comments, whether they're positive or negative. Uh, you know, the show is about you. And, and I hope all of you realize that, that this isn't about me and what I can do. It's about us and what we can do. That's what this is about. And so I appreciate everything that every one of you has done. And with that, you can always keep in touch on our email at theories at truth and justice pod.com. Call our voicemail tip line at 269-224-2833. Like our Facebook page or follow us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. Seven seconds silence. Do re mi fa sol la ti do. You want to test your loosen up the old vocal cords? Yeah, I think I need to, you know, gotta stretch them out a little bit. All right, I'm good. That's uh, how do you stretch your vocal cords? Oh, you just pick your chin up. Ah, did you see it? Yeah, I saw it. I just stretched my vocal cords. All right, that sounds perfect. Let's get it going. <laughs> no. Let's get it going. Let's get it going. Let's get it going. It's one of those things that I think a lot of people overlook. I just cut that. <laughs> I mean, really. All right. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm realizing you're genuinely upset with yourself right now. Yeah. There was no need for you to comment on that. No. No, it's okay. Yeah, it's all it's right. All right. Yeah, you do you. <laughs> Go over there and pet your f-ing dog and read the script. <laughs> That's all I gotta do. Like the words are right here in front of me. Just read the f-ing paper, dude. All right, Sarah. It's so true.